0: Today, I welcome Dr. Siva Mohan to the show. Siva received her BA in Neuroscience from Pomona University, her MD from Cornell's Weill School of Medicine, and a master's degree in public health from UC Berkeley. However, even after all of this education and traveling the world in the name of public health, she continued to land in the same frustrating place. Despite its ability to address trauma and infectious disease, Western allopathic medicine wasn't healing anyone. Consequently, she had a quarter-life crisis, which means practicing a lot of yoga. Now, yoga brought Siva back to her roots. When she was young, her Indian grandmother came to live with her family in the United States. Siva began to recall how any time she would feel ill or nauseous or have a headache, Her grandmother would brew herbs and teas and apply oils, and it would always make Siva feel better. As Siva brought her knowledge of Western medicine, her exposure to indigenous healing systems from traveling the world, and her grandmother's home remedies to the study of Ayurveda. And it was in Ayurveda that a pathway to healing began to be illuminated. The term Ayurveda can be confusing to many people because it gets used in so many contexts. In our conversation, Siva untangles the meaning of Ayurveda. We discuss the primary elements of the Ayurvedic universe, the gunas, the opposites that arise within nature and the doshas. We discuss how we can cultivate self-awareness of the body, the ability to notice energy patterns and imbalances and how to bring dysregulation into homeostasis. And Siva explained how the science of Ayurveda empowers the individual with agency over their own health. If you're interested in diving deeper into Ayurveda, you can take Siva's commune course, Living Well with Ayurveda. Just go to onecommune.com slash Ayurveda. That's A-Y-U-R. V-E-D-A. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Dr. Siva Mohan.
1: Ayur and Veda literally translated science of life, you know, so if you go to Google, you'll find the Ayurveda is a 5,000-year-old science of life, blah, blah, you know. And it's like, well, what is that? What is the science of life exactly? That's what I thought when I first came to it. And um, I didn't really quite get it. And then what I could wrap my head around first was, oh, it's a natural healing system. So instead of using, you know, um, x-rays and labs, you're using pulse and tongue and, other such diagnostic modalities. And instead of using drugs, you're using herbs and things. That was my next sort of level of understanding of it, which is really still just scratching the surface. So once I sort of progressed and progressed and progressed into the the richness (laughs) of, of what it is, the best way I can describe it is it's an awareness of energetics of everything. So literally it's like, imagine the world was black and white. And then all of a sudden you could see color. It's like a whole new layer of awareness you have of color, right? Um, It's similar in that there are, everything that's surrounding us and we ourselves are really just energy and so once you can start to see what are the energetics of this room what are the energetics of my tummy what are the energetics of um my wife leaving this morning or travel um that just brings this whole new vision to everything because then you're operating in another dimension, right? So you're not looking at the menu and saying, Oh, what am I going to eat today? How many carbs, how many fats, you know, uh, Dr. Mark Hyman told me this, like this other uh, health influencer told me this, and I'm trying to reconcile it all. And I'm trying to figure out what's the right thing to do up here Instead, we can really tap into what are the energetics that are, are happening in my digestive system today and what are the energetics of these foods and what are the energetics of this moment and navigate that decision with that whole new layer of awareness, right? So simply stated, I could say Ayurveda is an energetic mapping system. But then why are we mapping energetics? We're mapping energetics to be able to guide our choices, right? So we know, well, what asana practice is good for me today? What music is good for me today? What aromatherapy, what food, what routine? How should I navigate the energetics of my life in a way that is going to allow me to feel best, right? And so if you're making decisions in a way that really allows you to feel best, that's empowerment, right? So I would even push the boundary and I think I'm the only one to be saying this, but to me, Ayurveda is a system of self-empowerment. And that's something I really didn't find in all of the other natural sort of healing systems, right? Like for you to have a whole new layer of awareness and ability to navigate your micro to macro decisions with that awareness, I feel, is something that's unique to Ayurveda and really what drew me to it, right? Then if you're going through life and you're living in this way, which is not how most of us are living, right, where you're just attending to the energetics and and making your choices accordingly, then it really does become a lifestyle, right? So I think what has happened with Western Mm mass marketing, with uh, colonialization of India, Ayurveda going under down, we can we can go into more of these things later. Uh, with even patriarchy and and the um, sort of emphasis on science and experts and authority uh, versus um, internal awareness um, guiding decision making, I think all of those factors really came in to bring Ayurveda out in a very allopathicized rule-based context. So it almost seems like this, type yourself, live this way, type yourself, eat this thing. You know, here's all these rules for this dosha. Here's all these rules for this dosha. And I think it leaves everybody feeling like, oh, that's kind of cool, but I, I don't know where to start. And overall, all these rules uh, is overwhelming. And then we don't really use it. And it just becomes something that, oh, I I learned about that in a cleanse or I got a spa treatment with that or, you know, I bought a cookbook once.
0: Okay, this is so interesting um, <laughs> because it's really pulling at something that I've been thinking a tremendous amount about. And I, I don't want to take us uh, off the path of specifically Ayurveda, but I think what you're speaking to, this westernization of an Eastern practice, speaks to two very different ways that we understand the world and the foundational intelligence of the universe. So the Western paradigm, which is codified in Abrahamic religions and then subsequently in the empiricism of science Sees the world as something that is made. Like literally in the book of Genesis, God picks up a clay figurine and breathes life into Adam's nostril. And life is something that is created and made. And we can understand it by dissecting its component parts and putting it back together again. And if you look at traditions like Taoism, or Buddhism, for example, there is much more of a feeling or a sensation that the world and life emerges uh, spontaneously, moment to moment, as an organism functioning in and of itself. And it is not something that is made. It is something that is constantly emerging and evolving moment to moment. And obviously those traditions also teach us a lot about self-awareness. So there seems to be this merging of the awareness of what is emerging moment to moment in your own eco, in the ecosystem of your own body and um you know when i uh was researching you and your work um it's uh, i wrote down a number of different words one was agency um i think the other was self empowerment and um what else did i write and self knowledge and you know obviously western allopathic medicine for all of its benefits um does not seem to a focus on in on the individual on what makes it unique and what it's like to be you and what it's like to be me. It looks at ep- epidemiological studies and symptoms and then just uh, you know prescribes you know particular pharmaceuticals for particular systems or for particular symptoms excuse me um, but Ayurveda is, seems to me to be tapping into one's own individual intuition around what is emerging in their own body moment to moment. And you have this incredibly interesting biography. Um, and because you are, uh, you got your BA in neuroscience, your MD uh, from Cornell, a master's degree in public health from Berkeley. I mean, you are seriously anchored in Western medicine. You're not just coming at Ayurveda because you thought it was interesting in a yoga class, although that may be true too. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I maybe uh, uh, it would be interesting to pick apart your biography a little bit and you know what eventually led you to Ayurveda? Uh, perhaps kind of in contrast to what you had spent uh, a lot of your life learning, um, you know, steeping yourself in Western medicine.
1: Yes. And I mean, even before that, I love what you just did there in terms of like really going back to some of the creational stories and these roots of like fluidity versus one way. Mm-hmm. right yeah. uh, that's amazing but and i think that is at the core of the difference between um allopathic and ayurveda really it's this understanding that we are an expression of the natural universe we're all made up of the same thing the universe is made up of and there's a connectivity there and there's a uniqueness to my particular expression of energy and your particular expression of energy and the idea is well let's get to know the patterns and the movements and the expression well enough to attend to them in a way where really the ultimate goal is to feel Feel damn good in life, right? <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so, I like that's the true goal of Ayurveda, and so I think that's where touching on even your initial reference of it, it being a spiritual path, you know, in as as a path of self realization, right, as a path of um, understanding the lowercase self as a part of the uppercase self of the greater Brahmana and the greater universe and the connectedness with the divine in everything, which isn't really allowed for in some of those other models and systems. And that really is what drew drew me, I think, to Ayurveda from those systems, because in neuroscience, it was really the mind-body connection that fascinated me and decision-making fascinated me. My thesis was even on like gender um, differences in decision-making and just wondering that like, why do we choose what we choose um that was interesting to me and naturally i was so fascinated with the brain and the mind that i thought i would go into neurology uh it just that's what you do from neuroscience right and uh i always knew i wanted to be a doctor like even in the five-year-old home videos I always knew my path was in medicine and healing so I I didn't really take much time to question it I just went straight through to med school and um in medical school I felt like that limitation of those the structure that we were just referring to you know because there isn't an opportunity to get to know the whole context and picture and really attend to it or the history and the patterns there's there's no opportunity there it's really just a a very limited almost like i used to feel like ayurveda would allow me to hear the whole song but in western medicine i could only just get like three notes
0: exactly yeah that's a beautiful metaphor I mean, functional medicine starts to get at, you know, examining some of the root causes of disease, for example. Um, but, you know, so often in Western allopathic medicine, we have, um, we have atherosclerosis or coronary artery disease. And you just prescribe a statin and, you know, that takes down your LDL and your endogenous production of... of Low density lipoprotein, and there you go. You know. Oh, that's uh, such a
1: great example. Can I? Can I yeah, run with pull that? On sure. So you know, functional medicine, by the way, just as a side note, has roots in Ayurveda because Deepak Chopra helped to develop the specialty, and so that's why I think it has a little bit of that infused into it. But let's take even. I think this is a good way for listeners to understand what I'm saying about the whole song and the and the notes. So that example you just gave of CID and, okay, so what are we going to do? We are going to externally or exogenously bring in something to modify or modulate or to halt a process that is happening internally without really understanding why the process is happening internally, right? So in so many of our, Uh, diagnoses in the Western world, we only have symptoms that are associated or correlated, but we don't have elucidated clearly a causative pathway and there are multiple competing theories. So let's take with like, um, buildup of cholesterol in the arteries and taking a statin and or saying, okay, now you can't eat any cholesterol, right? Well, actually, interestingly, the most prevalent um, sort of theory about why do we build up cholesterol in the first place is microthelial tear theory, which means that there's little micro tears happening on the inside of the artery and that's signaling to the body hey there's some patchwork that's needed here and then the cholesterol is the coating of every one of our cells it's it's in like indispensable we cannot repair tissue without cholesterol right so then the cholesterol goes and it patches. Now, Ayurveda really understood this because they would look at it and they would look at the patterns of someone's life. And they would say, like, for example, oh, you have too much depletion and you have too much inflammation. And these patterns have been going on for a long time. And the result on this is that imagine you had a blow dryer on your tongue, you know, you're going to have very hot, dry, cracked sort of insides of your arteries. And naturally your body is trying to repair that. So let's help the body do that and we will douse you with ghee which is loaded in cholesterol (laughs) Mm. and we will calm down the depletion and nourish the heck out of you and we will attend to the inflammation and we will try to turn off that internal signaling to let's produce cholesterol and let's transport it in the blood and let's start patching it everywhere right and that's Let's compare and contrast those two approaches. Like, wow, like in one, you're going to be dependent on that statin for the rest of your life because the signal has been turned on by the liver to make cholesterol and to send it to tissues that need repair. Two, I've just blocked one of your most powerful ways to repair tissues. And three, I haven't changed the fact that the insides of your arteries look not very good.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I feel that, um, well, it's funny, functional medicine almost feels like, uh, you know, when I was a little boy, I would ask my parents why all the time, and then you just, and they're like, well, eat your vegetables. But, but why? Well, because uh, they have, they're nutritious. And I'm like, but why? You know, you just keep asking why. Um, and um, And, you know, Ayurveda is similar, but it's almost like feeling why you know, instead of asking why all the time, you know, really honing in on your own intuition around feeling. Um, Because, for example, you know, as you point out in that particular um, example of coronary artery disease, that irritation of the endothelial, which then actually um, sends a signal for LDL, which is actually an antioxidant to start with before it, it becomes more of a villain in the in the caper. Um, you know, there is a reason why your arterial walls would be uh, inflamed or irritated or pocked. And so, you know, and so I'm, I guess I'll ask the question, is there, how does one develop the self-knowledge or the intuition to be able to become more aware of themselves and say, ah, okay, there's inflammation arising in my system. And in order to counterbalance that, I need to do this.
1: Yeah, well, I'd like to really just say for a moment, it's not an intuitive only thing. Like, Really, it's a very sophisticated medical science, one that blows my mind and one that is so far beyond allopathic medicine, truly. And so the diagnostic, and and if you go to Ayurveda, anything in India right now, it's like there is nothing spiritual, intuitive, or woo-woo about it. It's super scientific because I think they're trying to prove to the Western world. And because after the, the colonialization, it resurfaced in this Western context in, in Britical, British medical institutions, right? So it is really truly a science and a beautiful one, the way I've presented it. And so maybe, you know, I'm leading you in that direction too, as your your real exposure is, is a lot um, with the course is, is this way of truly feeling and self assessing, because it can very much be a cerebral thing, right? So we can break down charts and say, here are all of these possible signs of inflammation in the body. And how many of them do you have? And that gives us a very clear yield to the degree of inflammation in your body. And that is a diagnostic sort of proxy, if you will, right? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Over time, I encourage my clients, my students to put those charts down and to feel it because we are made to sense energy. We have all these sense organs and there's more than just the five that we commonly talk about. And so our brains are biased and they are caught up with so many other shoulds and confounding factors but if we really get adept at feeling that will never lie to you right so I think we all do sort of come into this practice of seeing the energetics of what's happening within us and around us through a more cerebral scientific codification sort of process oh that's vata that's pitta that's kapha oh that's a combination of this and then i like to encourage people to slowly slowly come into the more intuitive approach but the problem is is that jeff frankly people don't feel very well these days yeah it's a practice in and of itself right
0: Yeah. And, um, I think I'd like to explore some of the ways that people can cultivate, uh, a a better ability to feel. Um, but I think maybe let's step back for a moment and, um, because Ayurveda is going to be very new to many, many people. And, um, I think, they'd be well served if we spent a little bit of time talking about some of the core elements if you can muster the stamina <laughs> to talk about them but literally the the five core elements that make up all of energetic patterns in the universe and then maybe go into sort of the coincidence of opposites that emerge within nature as codified by the gunas and and then maybe into the koshas just to provide some general organizing principle for the conversation,
1: woo, okay, um
0: <laughs> here we go, well,
1: here we go, Let's see. I think if I were talking to somebody brand new and they were like, "How do I do this, Siva? You know, how mm-hmm. do I start applying the science to my well being um I would take the definition of the energy mapping system. I'd say, okay, well, first things first, we have to develop this ability to sense energy and map it, right? And therein comes the energy categorization system. So, you know, we have to remember that the ancient sages were operating at a time when people lived in nature. And not to say that, oh, the five elements is the only way to categorize things. There are other ways. And if you look at all these other ancient cultures and healing systems, they're doing essentially the same thing in slightly different categorization. But I think it made a lot of sense for them to describe the world in the five elements because people lived in nature in close relationship with the five elements. So I think if you talk to someone from a long, long time ago, when you ask them about water and they're living next to a riverbank, they have such a rich way to describe the qualities of water. And today, if you go to somebody in modern times and you say, talk to me about water, you know, they're like, What? you know <laughs> like, uh, they got to you know they're not with that deep relationship with the five elements right and so i almost discourage people from even going there these days because we don't have that relationship and it just ends up feeling really abstract so i personally guide people to say okay if we're going to do energy mapping let's go straight to the three doshas which are What eventually, anyways, the categorization is reduced down to. So for people who are totally brand new, we're categorizing energy, energy of anything and everything because everything is energy. And originally the sages did that with saying we can break everything down into the five elements and then we can further break them down into three primary energy types. And that's literally what dosha, it's a... It's a causative energy, right? So these are ones that we probably heard of and where people try to get you to type yourself as. So it's the vata, the pitta, and the kapha. And um, I definitely go into this more in the course, but the short version is, look, everything in the natural universe has to be created, built, assembled, grown. (laughs) It has some function, purpose, um, transformation or work that it does. And then it is degenerated, disassembled and, or, you know, um, uh, disseminated dies. Right. Yeah. And so it makes sense that the three primary energies are really that this energy of creation, kapha, this energy of sustenance and and purpose and doing pitta and the energy of the disassembly, so to speak. Uh vata, right? And it, again, our relationship with these three doshas develops over time. It you know, when I first started learning about this, I was like, oh pitta hot, pitta fire hot, pitta fire hot, you know, <laughs> pitta fire inflammation. <laughs> and, you know, it's only after time that i could understand it also is like what allows me to digest information and what um, feels like intensity in my day sometimes and what feels like um, an irritation with my children maybe right like so to be able to identify the energy, the way I guide people to do that is through the qualities. I think you mentioned the word gunas. So there's the gunas that are talking about consciousness. That's Rajasattva Tamas. And then there's the gunas in the physical plane, which is what we're referring to, which are the physical qualities, right? So again, in Ayurveda, back then, they kind of broke it down into these sort of 20 odd main things like wet, dry, hot, cold, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um in the course, I, I use a lot of other words that I think are a little more relatable because people don't necessarily think of like dispersing <laughs> as a term that they are thinking of in their lives, maybe, right? Um so If you can start to identify the presence of a quality, which everyone can do because we can all sense, right? I know when the conversation is dry. I know when my hair is dry, you know, it's okay, I can feel dryness. If dryness is a quality of Vata energy, then I know that energy must be present, right? So that's probably the best way that I can recommend for people to come into this practice of starting to sense the energies, um, within their bodies, within their emotional bodies, within their minds, within their lives. Right. And then we get to do sort of this matchy matchy because, um, you brought in the opposite. So let's talk about that for a moment. So it's a very simple like grandmother wisdom, sort of premise that opposite qualities balance each other, right? So I really see all of the world on a spectrum of quality now because of Ayurveda. And I understand that it's not that you need to be this way or that way. It's when you come too far this way and you get the signals for that, then you take a few, you know, steps back this way until those signals resolve, aka signs and symptoms in the body, right? So if I'm feeling too hot, well, maybe I'll have a cool glass of water, maybe I'll turn on the AC, maybe I'll take a rest, and, and then I'm not feeling hot anymore. And the signals are letting me know, okay, you've kind of come back to a homeostatic sort of balanced place. And that's That's really what we mean when we say balance in Ayurveda, and it's really what we're aiming for is we're aiming to constantly kind of watch where our energetics are at, be attentive to the signals from our own being about where we are at, make adjustments to sort of come back to this homeostatic place until the signals resolve, which is the confirmation. Did I answer it? Yes, (laughs)
0: Yes, <laughs> very, very well. Okay, good. For me, who is uh, steeped in Taoism right now um, and trying to live um, with the water's course or in harmony with the Tao, which is essentially that the Logos, the foundational intelligence of nature brings together op, brings opposites together into coherence. And um, so this is a big part of the way I'm trying to live my life right now is to constantly be able to identify when something becomes extreme and then be able to balance it such that I'm great, creating greater coherence into my That's
1: life. That's Ayurveda.
0: And that can be applied to... <laughs> politics, <laughs> though we don't have to apply it to politics here, but um, mm-hmm. it can be applied to a whole variety of, of aspects of life. Um, and in a way, m- modern Western culture is designed to meet like with more like instead of like with its opposite to find balance. Um, but that, that's a whole other discussion about how life but has become that's other also- Yeah. Yeah, But
1: that's exactly why Ayurveda is a lifestyle, right? Mm -hmm. Because it, it is that awareness of where am I at and what do I need? That This is like my tagline that's in every one of my courses. And whenever (laughs) I teach, I try to drill it into people. It's the practice of where am I at? What do I need? And that happens in marriage. That happens in political beliefs. That happens in parenting. That happens in career. That happens in everything, right? In the course, we really focus on wellness and the body and being able to understand the signals and interpret them. That your body is giving you, so that you can understand where you are at, and you learn this language, and you learn to be able to sense the energies in your body, and then a beginning um, sort of understanding of what do I need based on where I'm at, the response to the assessment, right, and mm-hmm. just sort of some basics on that. But you know, outside of the course, this this is infused like I told you about seeing your life in technicolor, now I cannot not see the energetics in a conversation, in a, in a season, in a vacation, in everything.
0: And are you born with the equivalent of a DNA nucleotide sequence um, in terms of your energetics? You know, for example, so you can exist across this spectrum of the koshas and have sort of mix uh, of different energetics. But are you born with a kind of stable composition and then, and then from that core base, you experience different balances and imbalances?
1: Ooh, I love this question. That's a good one. Okay. Okay. So um, here's the thing we do sort of have, the genetics or the constitution, right? And this is the energetics of where the egg was at and where the sperm was at when you were conceived combined. So yes, there's mom and dad's DNA in there, but the energetics of that also infused with the energetics of the pregnancy and the birth process. So that sort of patty cake Produces the pie of you, right? And (laughs) that's your foundation. However, we have a lot of genetic material and how it is expressed, as you can see with siblings, like siblings from the same parents that have the same technical genetic makeup and how differently it's expressed. No, and it's not just the difference of, um, you know, oh, mom was older. No, it's, it's really, if you start to look at the qualities, like, for example, my younger sister has so much more uh, katha in her constitution because my parents were in such a settled, grounded, or like all kind of chunky and abundant by that time of their lives, as opposed to when they had me and they were you know just scraping by as immigrants. And it was a very different energetic that went into me. But not only did the energetics... Determine sort of the difference between my sister and I and, and how we have come out in our little energy balls. But we continue to take in energy. Our, our whole lives is just absorbing the energy of our lives and taking it in and literally making ourselves up of it. And so therein comes the whole field of epigenetics because um, in Ayurveda, definitely we believe that the energetics of your life can influence what, what is expressed and how and when and to what degree. And so this brings me to the concept of current state, which is different from constitution. And I think it's really important for new people to understand this. And this is why in the course and in general, I really discourage people from doing a constitution analysis. I, I really think it's irrelevant and because it's not your first step at all. If I'm going to say, hey, Jeff, let's heal you or let's make you feel better today it's going to all be based on what your energetics are today and that may not be relevant for how you were made (laughs) really i'm not treating how you were made i'm treating where you're at and what you need right so where i diverge from traditional ayurveda and you know some of my teachers aren't very fond of this but my little rebellion is to say look put that down, focus on where you're at today, let's attend to that. And if you can have that as your daily practice, that's enough. Then over time, as you deepen your practice of energetic awareness of your own patterns and who you are and how you operate and how to best set your life up to attend to that, then the greater context of your constitution comes into play and it's fun and it's helpful, but it's really not necessary to live an Ayurvedic lifestyle.
0: Yeah, that's so fascinating. Um, Of course, the Buddhists said a lot about impermanence and this notion that there is no stable self. And uh, a lot of that was addressing kind of human consciousness and psychology. But even if we look at physiology, there is nothing stable about what it's like to be Jeff moment to moment. I have, I'm a, I'm a wash in, neurotransmitters, dopamine, and then acetylcholine, and then someone slams the door and a spike of epinephrine, and then I have something to eat, and then there's some serotonin in there, and (laughs) you know, all the blood is going to my stomach and away from my heart, and you know, my breath rate's going down, but then something else happens, and my heart rate goes up, and you know, it's just like, I am, there's nothing stable or permanent about what it is like to be alive, and you know, we kind of fool ourselves that there is a stable, reliable self, because one moment seems so much like the last moment. So we have this sense of psychological and physiological continuity to life. But reality is, we are just in a constant state of impermanence and motion, and we are just spontaneously emerging moment to moment. So you know, but doesn't to, that
1: leave you feeling so overwhelmed because then it's like well what do I what what do I do and i I I love your like physiology you know geeking out I think that's so awesome <laughs> but this is exactly what I found so challenging in is the the common language in platform to be able to view how all of my life is affecting me is not there in functional medicine or physiology, right? Like, so how is what's happening in my day and in my marriage and with my children and in my food and in my work and in the weather and in the seasons all related? And I I can't describe all of that in the neurotransmitters. And it leaves me at a loss to really get a sense of the the big picture and how I should be navigating my life choices. Whereas with Ayurveda, because I can view all of those things in the same language mm-hmm. and understand the energetics of how all of this is coming in and my body is showing me how it's digest digesting it or, you know, <laughs> taking it in. It gives me clarity on how to make the micro choices and the macro choices
0: mm, yeah yeah i I think of um sort of dependent origination or these notions of mutual interdependence as um, as made physical by the the image of Indra's net, for example, this kind of ever expanding web of Uh, of existence in which each juncture, there is a bead of water that reflects every other bead. And it is impossible to, (laughs) you know, it's impossible. That's a great image. Yeah. It's impossible to cognitively dissect the reflections of every single other bead. So bringing that back into reality here, um, all of the inputs, environmental uh, Etc. That are are influencing what it is like to be me or what it is like to be you moment to moment. Those are impossible to cognitively discern, <laughs> and so um, so we need systems and understandings um, in order uh, to be able to find a place of homeostasis of, of balance of living in accordance with nature. Um, and, um, and then, you know, this is obviously I'm very new to, to, to this science, but I'm, as you can tell, I'm fascinated by it because, um, as I try to understand how everything that emerges is dependent on everything else, you know, what am I, what am I to do? (laughs) And, um, and, and so, you know, maybe we can use some sort of specific grounding examples, um, for people because inevitably, you know, quotidian life is full of the 10,000 things and logistics that can elicit certain kinds of sensations and feelings, some of which can be, you know, very uncomfortable. So, you know, like, let's say travel for me. And I, 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 I picked that one because I have a lot of anxiety around travel. You know, I like to be very stable and, and, you know, I love my home. I love my routines, et cetera. So when I'm having to like hustle all my estrogen footprint, which is my loving name for my family, because I have three daughters. (laughs) um, (laughs) um, When I have to hustle this footprint, you know, into a car, into the airport, uh, you know, you know, bags and planes and trains and automobiles. I tend to uh, get anxious and and a little bit nauseous. Um, and uh, and I wonder. So, with other people that may have a similar um, impulse or reaction to travel and the anxiety associated with travel, maybe we just use that as an example. How do you? Um, yeah how do you meet that's that an, where it is it's a
1: good one and we're all we all do a lot of travel and movement so i think a lot of people can relate to this example now so if we're looking at any balancing um, goal or intention it's just going to be the same process over and over again so we're going to look at what are the energetics that are surrounding the experience or inherent in the experience and what are the energetics that are revealed by the person that we're trying to attend to, right? So the energetics of travel are all vata. So transition, movement, um, unfamiliar, stimulation, change, um, l- even especially flying, like we're in the air, it's so cold and dry. Mm -hmm. Um, These are all qualities of vata. And so travel is like a vata bomb that we take in, right? And so just using that opposite sort of thing, we're like, okay, well, we need to counter some of those energetics as much as possible, right? So, um, some very generic tips, not talking specifically about you, would be we need to bring in the opposite quality. So, as much as we can, you know, bring in the opposite of literally all the adjectives that I just mentioned, right? So, some destimulation, some familiarity, some. Ease, space, time, um, warmth, moisture, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, are going to be things that counter that, right? So, this is just like super surface level. Look at the qualities, bring in the opposite qualities. That's always going to be balancing kind of approach. But then we can get a little more dialed in too, and say, okay, well, what are the effects of vata on the nervous system? Well anxiety um overwhelm distractibility trouble focusing fear worry um trouble sleeping well and a lot of people experience these effects in the mind and nervous system okay well what are the effects in the digestive system well the digestive system is a warm moist super rhythmic kind of system it doesn't like any of that so basically when you bring all of that in um You see a lot of gas, bloating, constipation, loss of a true physical appetite, loss of a really good digestive capacity, the ability to break down and absorb food. Um, And um, sometimes even a paresis, like like it just kind of stops working, you know, because the sympathetic nervous system is on. You're not in your parasympathetic, which is the rest and digest. And so it kind of like says, stop, if yeah. you will, right? Yeah. So the nervous system and digestive obviously interplay there. And then we could look at, like, let's say skin, right? And op- oftentimes you'll see people get really dry. You get the idea. So you can kind of go on a systems level and you can understand the effects of this energetic on that system. And then you can bring in more specific counters, right? So, okay, can we bring in practices, herbs, foods that are going to decrease vata in the mind and nervous system, support digestive capacity, um, and uh, reduce some of those signs and symptoms. And absolutely, so for me personally, when I travel, I have some specific practices that I do. I always give a huge buffer time to the airport so I don't have any of that anxiety about like missing anything. And that allows me to turn off that whole like, oh my God, something bad's gonna happen if I don't blah, blah, blah um the other thing that i do is i always give a buffer day when i arrive anywhere including when i arrive back home so that i know i have time to sort of like ground and reclaim my practices because naturally vata is a very dispersing erratic unpredictable kind of force and so it's very common to fall off of our routines and our habits when we travel. So I give myself that buffer time. I always travel with an empty thermos and I go to the, you know, cafe in the airport and have them fill it with a hot water. I usually will bring a digestive tea or powder or fresh sliced ginger in there to improve my digestive capacity. Usually on days that I travel, I only eat soup and broths and very warm things, which is not really what they serve at the airport. So um, I know in every airport where I can get my soup, <laughs> which place. <laughs> and uh, it's like this, like, you know, you kind of have to just work it out. I oil my ears and my nose with castor oil beforehand. I always bring noise canceling headphones and play like Schumann's resonance or something that's going to ground. I do pranayama while I'm waiting for takeoff. I oil my feet. I bring an extra pair of socks. I make sure I have a blanket. I take a warm bath when I arrive if possible or the night before I leave. If I really want to get fancy, I might even do an oil enema if I'm like flying to India and it's like a 27 hour flight. So do you see like it's all of these little tips are not rules and it's not like everybody needs to do these things, but these are ways to bring in those opposite balancing qualities and the ways we can bring in opposite balancing qualities are infinite. You can get very creative, but this is just an example.
0: Yeah, that was great. Uh, just out of curiosity, are you kind of naturally a Kafa energy
1: No, no. No. And so thank you for that compliment.
0: (laughs) Well, I, I, cause I asked because you basically this ritual that you described at least the first half of it. And then, uh, you lost me at oil enema, but, um, was, (laughs) was exactly what I do. Um, I uh, tend to
1: be very Vata imbalanced and those were all Vata imbalancing tips. And the reason you do them, Jeff, is because what you have done is studied yourself.
0: Mm. And so
1: you have paid attention to what works for me, what feels better to me. And you hold on to those. And you obviously have a lot of Vata in your constitution. I can see this in your bone structure and such. And even in your like, ooh, I want to learn about everything. What's this (laughs) and what's that, you know? You also have a lot of pitta going on. And so that might also play into something because it's never just in a silo. I think that's an important point to make. It's never like, oh, we're just dealing with vata or pitta or kapha. It's everything is fluid. It's just a categorization system. But think about the primary colors, red, blue, and yellow. We categorize millions of shades in these three primary colors. But it's very rare to have pure blue, yellow, or what, but we still find families, we find patterns, and we work with it, right? It's the same in Ayurveda with Vata Pitta Kapha.
0: Yeah, I think that's really a great point that we exist across this spectrum and that the energetics within that that spectrum are mutable, they're malleable. Um, And I'm also laughing a little bit because my wife left for Kauai on a women's trip, girls, you know, friends trip this morning. And she leaves with the absolute minimal time because she doesn't want to spend even 1 minute extra in the airport. And so I, I this has been a tug-of-war in our relationship for 34 years. I always want to leave like 3 hours early, she wants to leave like 45 minutes early. Anyways, but when she goes by herself, she can leave whenever she wants. Um, so maybe we could address another, uh, energetic and, um, we're in February, at least when we're doing this interview and a lot of North America where we live is cold. Um, obviously we live in Southern California, so we're a little bit, um, you know outside of the the normal temperature but what you know a lot of people ask me you know in this time of the year like how do i address feelings of lethargy i can't get out of bed i seem to be procrastinating all the time um and maybe you could uh dissect that a little bit in the same way that you dissected the travel conundrum
1: yeah sure so what we have in, in the fall, when it starts to get cold and windy and, and there's like a dry cold, right? And then as we come through the winter and start coming into the spring, it's more of a damp cold. So that's basically the transition from Vata into kafa season, if you will. But we've just gone through so much cold. We're really cold, like deeply now for people that live in really cold climates and depletion is a part of that too. Right. And so you're already cold, you're depleted and now comes a heavy damp on top of that. And you're like, Ooh, trying to move through that. And it's everybody can relate to this because when you have a bright morning, the sun is shining, it's hot outside. You're so much more motivated to get out of bed than when it's like super gray and rainy and cold, just, just want to stay in the covers. It's the natural effect of those energetics, right? So it's definitely the same approach that we just did where, okay, we're going to take these qualities of stagnation, of cold, of dampness, of um, depletion, and we're going to just bring in the opposite qualities, right? So we need um, things that strip away accumulation and stagnation we need things that warm it up for sure Uh, we need things that nourish on a soul sort of level right and that kind of stimulate if you will Right. And now, again, we could play that little game of like, how many ways can you think to bring in those qualities? Right. So really spicy food is good. Bringing in herbs that are, for example, circulatory stimulants or nervine stimulants that kind of get get you motivated and going, which is why so many people reach for caffeine. Right. Because it it falls in that category. Um having a lot of warmth in other ways too. So the warm and moist is really good. So the um, bath, let's say, but then also we want to strip away accumulation of stagnation. So more like if I add a bunch of Epsom salts in there and I'm actually detoxing. And then if I add in a bunch of essential oils that are warming and stimulating or like fresh eucalyptus or whatever, like, you know, it's like every little micro choice you can head toward those qualities. So what we want to avoid would be foods that are cold, like ice drinks, ice cream, um, raw foods, think salad, foods that don't have a lot of nutritional value, the munchy-munchy stuff, really, all that crispy, crunchy, cracky stuff is not helping anything. And then all of the really heavy stuff isn't helping anything too. So something like mashed potatoes or thick oatmeal or, you know, that's just like, more of the same qualities right so you want to lean towards the broths and the you know um, really like the greens and the bitter greens are what kind of strip away accumulation and then the spices you know it doesn't have to be super spicy pungent hot but even just culinary spices and to your own taste of what you can take as heating and warming these are just simple, simple things, right? And then also to sweat. So this is the time of year for sauna. And this is the time of year to really kick it up with cardio. And, you know, um, it's a time where the counter is also to clear out the accumulation. So this is where spring cleaning comes from. It's a time to kind of take stock of like, what's weighing me down? What's you know, creating heaviness and stagnation accumulation and kind of getting rid of it. So this is a great time of year for detoxes, um, cleanses in the body, and then also for the home. So just to give you a few ideas of, okay, this is just basic, looking at the energetics that are present, setting the intention to bring in the healing qualities, and then brainstorming creative ways that we can bring in those.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. so I have a question about the relationship between yoga and Ayurveda. Now, I, as I was doing a little bit of research, I was in the Upanishads and I, I actually was reading a little bit about Ayurveda in the Bhagavad Gita itself. So as you mentioned, this is a a science that goes back millennia. Um, and obviously the other science, if you will, that goes back and is very parallel to Ayurveda is is yoga. So what is the relationship between the two? Is there overlap? What are the differences? Um, because I think a lot of people are discovering Ayurveda through yoga, but I think it's, uh, I want to at least give you an opportunity to make the distinction.
1: Yeah, it's so true. and And even... I came to Ayurveda through yoga, you know, it is, it's kind of how we hear it's like, oh, there's a workshop or someone's doing a kitchari cleanse or something like that. And then you learn about it in this very sort of like, oh yeah, it's herbs and diet and routine and rules about season. And it's kind of in this box, you know, and, um, I feel like it's often also described as like a sister science to yoga and yeah. to me I would describe Ayurveda as the mother science to yoga and and the reason why is because yoga in and of itself is a vast array of practices and tools that lead to the cultivation of certain qualities and awareness within ourselves right so if that that's like a very basic summary of yoga but how do I know how to modulate those practices and tools for me today? Yoga does not give us that. Ayurveda does, right? So if I'm aware of the energetics of where am I at and what do I need, I know how to modify my asana, my pranayama, my type of meditation, when I do what, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
0: Mm. So, for example, with a, with pranayam, with like a breathing technique, if you are aware of where you are energetically, that might impact the kind of practice that you would adopt on a particular day. So, I'm just Absolutely. I'm actually asking this, not saying it. So, there are breathing techniques that I deploy, like the Andrew Wild technique of four, seven, eight. You know, that's more of a grounding meditation or uh, breathwork practice for me um to calm me down um i guess kind of technically to up the carbon dioxide saturation in my blood um but then there's other times when i'm actually looking for more alertness uh in my life and so i might adopt a Tumo breath or a wim hof style breathing which is um, more oxygenating and uh and kind of spikes gives you a little epinephrine spike that might make you more alert so in a way you're just hacking your autonomic nervous system but ayurveda seems to give you the insight into actually which one to do at any particular time
1: yeah exactly so i mean and this is the beautiful thing is like i could say oh yes like Anilom Balom has this, Bastrika has this, blah, blah, blah. But even let's just take the two that you're working with and like you're choosing them because you know the physiological benefits and so you're reaching for that. But it's really the same. You're saying, where am I at? What do I need? And you have a cerebral understanding of that. But let's say you didn't. If you're feeling dispersed and all over the place and you know that you're needing grounding, right? And okay, then look at this breath work. It's very clear, super structured. There's no like waviness about it. And because it has that clear structure and the way the times are set up for the breath, it it has a grounding effect. And you don't need to know the physiology behind that to feel it, right? And if we just look at the qualities, you can understand why that works. Whereas the Wim Hof breath is very heating. You know, and it's very stimulating. So it's like a raise that Pitta, you know, kind of breathwork, which makes sense for what Wim does. Right. And um, so when we're feeling like we need to be productive, we need to function, we need to produce, we need to do, we need to digest, we need to transform that's pitta energy that we're really looking to cultivate more of. So to do a breath work that cultivates more of that energy is really a good fit because obviously you're starting in a place where you're not feeling motivated, stimulated, and ready to produce.
0: Mm. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about, uh, diet and, um, the Ayurvedic diet because so many people have, um, uh I think relate Ayurveda to food. And so maybe if you could take a minute to break down kind of how the doshas relate to various taste or, or f- flavor profiles, etc. And and how does how does this all work?
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I'm gonna say, let's throw those food chart and taste chart. Let's throw that out the window because that okay. is just like this big like oh, like. <laughs> You know, like I once had a client that was like, I went and bought everything on the Vata column of the food chart at the grocery store. (laughs) No. (laughs) And and the reason why is because, okay, individual ingredients, when they are combined and when they're alchemized and how we prepare them, it's the end product whose energetics we want to sense. Right. And so very rarely do you have something that's just one taste or just one ingredient and and isn't altered in any way. Right. So that's why those charts are meant to be an understanding of the breakdown. And then you bring it all into the combination. But unless you're a Vaidya, like it, that's very hard to do for the average person to like figure that out. Right. It's a big puzzle. So what we can figure out is this. Um, what are the qualities of the food? I can sense that. I can sense if it's heavy, if it's light, if it's bitter, if it's sweet, if it's warm, if it's cold, if it's dry, if it's moist. And really, that's what I need, right? So when it comes down to the digestive system, there's a few different pieces that we look at in Ayurveda. There's actually first and foremost, your digestive capacity. So before I'm even playing with changing the energetics of your food, I want to know, like, how good is your digestive system at digesting? And can I optimize that? Because in Western culture, we blame the food so much. And we're not looking at, you know, and even with these food sensitivity tests and things like so often I find clients where they have very restrictive diets because their system is in such a depletion and inflammation or accumulation of toxic buildup or whatever it's just like very reactive and then after we really nourish their capacity to digest that's the first Sort of consideration, and the second thing is clean the tube or the health of the tube. You know, is it is it very depleted and dry and weak? Is it very inflamed and infected? Microbiome imbalances, right? And or is it uh, full of a lot of accumulation and buildup of like partially digested, you know, nitrogenized food waste? these are things I want to attend to. And by the way, those, that's sort of how I present imbalances in Vata, Pitta, and Kapha house. So depletion, inflammation, accumulation, like everyone can wrap their head around that, right? So we look at digestive capacity, we look at the tube, we work on those two first. (laughs) Then we say, okay, what's going on from your body's signals? What is your body telling us it wants, like how does your poop look? How are your digestive symptomatologies? How is your appetite? How does your tongue look? And you don't even need all of those. You probably just take two of the four, but that's going to give me the feedback of, is there are there a lot of signs and symptoms of the depletion of inflammation or accumulation? And that's what allows me to attend to what am I going to do to help this person? Um, not only clean the tract, but also choose food that is balancing for them. So obviously, if there's a lot of depletion and inflammation together, then I need food that is essentially like what a lot of functional medicine recommends, which is going to be anti-inflammatory in nature and nutrient rich, right?
0: Yeah. I was just wondering, because there's so much self-assessment Associated with Ayurveda, and self-assessment then leading to self- empowerment and agency. Um, and so I wonder how you feel about you know this this kind of explosion within the kind of allopathic system of kind of personalized medical devices and tools in order to help that self-assessment. And so I'll get specific, like I wear a blood glucose monitor, can't see it because I have a long shirt on, um, but it's a sensor that sits on my tricep that I wave an app at it and I can, for better or worse, have another thing to refresh all day and see how, what my blood glucose levels are looking like. Now, I, I do that just because I'm a geek and I'm interested in that right now, um, but I wear an aura ring. Uh, which is primarily focused around, uh, monitoring sleep, but also activity and heart rate and heart rate variability. Um, but then there's all of these kind of more sophisticated blood panel, uh, trackers like inside tracker and other ones. There's, um, obviously you can have your microbiome, the bacteria in your gut tested by sending in a little vial of fecal matter. So I, I, you know, and I, I feel very, um, like those are empowering tools. They can also give you a lot of uh, anxiety if you're too caught up in them. But do you find that some of these kinds of devices and tools are helpful in self-assessment as it specifically pertains to Ayurveda or are they really more distraction?
1: Yeah, I, I don't find them helpful. I think that... um there's a few different things that I've been seeing with the, this trend. Right. And first of all, it's like, look, like until you know how to look at your poop and feel your stomach and feel how food feels in your stomach and really plug into tasting it, it, like it's a whole new way to approach your relationship with food. And that is not something that can be replaced. And so, the other huge confounder is that one of the biggest portals in which all of the energetics from the subtle energetic body come into the physical body is the digestive system. For women, we also have the womb as a second portal, but all humans, it's the digestive system. So, what is happening in our lives? Another way to say this might be like how well we're digesting the experience of our lives for me is like 50% of the picture of what I see in people's digestive systems, 50%. Then the remaining 50, I would say split, like 25% is how they're eating. You know, are you taking time to deactivate, like get your parasympathetic on and actually like get ready to receive food? Are you sitting down? Are you driving? Are you in front of a computer? Are you grabbing food while you're feeding kids? You know, are you in a busy space? Are you talking to someone and inhaling your food? Like 25% is just how you're eating. And the remaining 25% is what we're eating. You know, in terms, this is like what I'm noticing is, is what's happening in the patterns of people's digestive systems. So it's very frustrating for a lot of people because they're working so hard to do the FODMAP or to wear monitors or to get tracked or to do this. And then they're like, I'm eating all the right stuff. And why am I seeing what I'm seeing? And it's like, it's very disheartening for people. And I think all of this technology, it's fun. It's cool. Don't get me wrong. Like I'm really geeking out of bioenergetics myself these days, but it's taking, it's just another It's the new science it, the removal of awareness we're not building awareness; we're building knowledge, and there's a difference in that.
0: Oh, yes, yeah. Mm.
1: So it's like you have all this more data. Great, you have more data. Does that make you feel really clear about what you need to eat right now? What would feel best for your body to eat right now, and and to remove all already all of the priming that we have from media, culture, family, all the diet stuff all the doctor stuff like and all that stuff is wrong and contradictory in some context do you know what i'm saying so it's like literally if you look at every food approach that we have eating for your blood type to paleo to raw to vegan to whatever there is some context where it's not good for you and like we have said in science everything it used to be eat a eat a very low fat diet and high carb and now it's eat a high fat, low carb diet and it will keep changing just like the fat of gene styles. Do you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. it's never gonna change. But the truth is is like what is good for me in times of travel versus times of stress versus premenstrually versus when I'm pregnant versus menopausally versus in the cold of the winter and versus the hot of the summer is different. And none of that technology is going to teach me how to choose well.
0: Yeah, I often think about how there's two great questions that we simply cannot seem to properly answer as human beings. One, what is the meaning of life? And the other one is what to put in our mouths. (laughs) And the way that you can judge that is just go to the bookstore and see how many thousands of books are on uh, each topic. To, to demonstrate that it is an absolutely open topic. Um, nobody knows uh, for sure. And I think that it, you know Ayurveda seems to address both of those things, both of those questions. Um, but also just democratizes the access to it and the tools um, to it to actually, instead of maybe reading a book about it, maybe answer help to start to answer those questions for yourself.
1: Absolutely. In the course, we definitely go through, you know, how do you start that awareness of, uh, and the assessment of plugging into like what your digestive system is really telling you what you want versus your brain and your shoulds, Mm -hmm. you know, and then, um, in my app also the, it's a free app with the downloadable content. I go into some of these things too, because I think this is, like, happy digestion, happy life, you know, like, Mm. but your digestive system is the one system, like I said, where the stuff from the subtle energetic body is coming in. And it's also the, the one system that is literally taking in everything from your life and your food and processing it and distributing it to provide to every other part of your body, right. And also the digestive system is like, the soil, if you will, of the plant of your immune system. So this is why Ayurveda puts so much emphasis on healthy digestion and why there is such a big presence in the sort of food uh, industry.
0: Yeah, I think that metaphor between your gut and the soil is such a good one. And you can Thank even you. map the the physical nature of like the mycelium networks and and the <laughs> yeah. earthworms and an aerated soil full of microorganisms etc i'm growing nutritious beautiful plants and your gut similarly if you have a you know a, a high and diverse population of amazing microbes um in there you're gonna um you're going to have a much happier life with all sorts of good short chain fatty acids and all these other things that I'm into right (laughs) now. Um, (laughs) um, I
1: just thought it would be nice to share with people, you know, I'm presenting Ayurveda as this very like sentient practice of being in tune with where you're at and what you need and attending to that. And, you know, um, I don't want to, maybe misrepresented as like soft in its healing capacity because when I first started practicing Ayurveda, I think because I had the MD and all the letters behind my name, I attracted a lot of people that were so fed up with their chronic degenerative diseases and had multiple diseases. And oh my God, the results I've seen with multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, Hashimoto's, um, I myself have um, had several of these diagnoses, um, you know, really um, getting people off of their meds was sort of my claim to fame for the first five years of my practice. And not that that's what I intended to do, that's what they wanted. And And what we did was we worked in concert with their doctors because I don't practice any Western medicine. It's legally way too dangerous for me to do that. So I'm fully under the house of Ayurveda. And um, I think that there's a huge opportunity for more of that work where we can, so what we would do is I would educate and empower them. And I would work on the awareness of the energetics of their lives and their choices and how they were propagating disease. And then I would secondarily also bring in a bunch of natural tools to attend to their specific patterns and disorders and symptoms. And then as we watched them change how they're operating in life and the energetics they're curating, they're, you know we're cultivating the energetics of our lives in our choices. And as we watched the effects of all of the natural sort of uh, remedies and, and things that we brought in, we saw shifts in, in their symptoms. And we used this to then have them proactively go back to the doctor's office, demand rediagnosis, rework labs, and um, wean them off of their medications. And it was really interesting. I mean, I've seen this so many times over with so many different cases and so many different reactions from the doctors. At the end, despite their resistance and hesitation the reaction always came down to how the hell did you do that? And, um, you know, like, Oh, I have goosebumps. One of, even a case that I didn't even think was going to happen, um, I had a 73-year-old woman who was on 150 micrograms of thyroid hormone, who had been on it for over 50 years. And she came in saying, well, every woman in my family has this. It's just a genetic thing. We, we're all low thyroid. Well, and I remember what I said to her, which was apparently what made her decide to be my client. I said, well, every woman in your life is probably running in an empty tank and thinks it's normal. and i was right you know and um because that's the energetic pattern underlying that and um it's it's not a coincidence that one in four women is taking thyroid hormone these days in america like and the stats are probably higher now and uh this woman who is at an age where you don't think there's a lot of rejuvenative capacity left in the body and with 50 years of a dependence, like you don't expect an organ to just come back like that. And it's in. it was a really interesting journey, but it was a year and a half. And it was also very fascinating because her labs lagged behind her feeling in her body by like three months, hmm. which was super, I'd never seen that before. But in a year and a half, Jeff, she was down to 25 micrograms. Mm. That's huge. Um, she was threatened. So, so what's possible with Ayurveda and with these things, even though it seems like a very light sort of spiritual thing, um, it's a force. It's really powerful healing.
0: Yeah. Well, e- even for folks that just are new to Ayurveda, but have adopted this notion that food is medicine, that there are phytonutrients and polyphenols and all of these other compounds in what we put into our body. and Or other people that may have adopted a meditation practice because they have so much anxiety and stress in their lives. Well, we all know now that there's knock-on physiological impacts connected to the psychological impacts of stress. So all of this, again, as you say, this is this is a science, a wisdom of life, and um, and the more uh, I think, the more that we can understand it and apply it, um, the more human flourishing there will be. And, you know, I'm so grateful to have this opportunity, um, to speak with you in depth, finally, after years, um, and you bring so much wisdom and science, uh, but you do it with tremendous eloquence and grace. Um, so I'm very, very grateful. So excited for the course, uh, on commune. And I, I really hope this is just uh, the beginning of our relationship.
1: Oh, me too. This is a really fun conversation. I loved how it kind of came full circle to, I hope everybody out there, if if nothing else, now does understand why it's called the science of life. Because it's, it's how to cultivate life, you know, um, in a way that feels really good to us. You know, how to live well and how to navigate life. It, it really is that in addition to being all of the other things. So thank you so much for having me and for asking such thoughtful questions and and uh, tying it into so much other stuff that I think people could really relate to well.
0: Nice, yeah. Well, I have a whole ream of more questions, but for the next- Let's do it again, uh, Jeff. <laughs> for the next episode. All awesome. right. To be continued. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Siva Mohan. If you're interested in diving deeper into Ayurveda, you can take Siva's commune course, Living Well with Ayurveda. Just go to onecommune.com slash Ayurveda. A-Y-U-R-B-E-D-A. And if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you know how much effort that we put into the show's creation. And we really do our best to keep sponsors to a minimum. This is not one of those shows where I prattle on for 15 minutes about ads. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than a 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. You can check it out for free for 14 days at onecommune.com slash trial. And of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime at K at onecommune.com. I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible, including Jake Laub, Megan Stone, Ruby Foster, Emma Fretz, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.